بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومواله وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته to all our guests our visitors our viewers and our listeners and of course to my co-host this evening uh, Dr. Molina Yusuf Patel السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وعليكم السلام ورحمة الله وبركاته Molina Thank you for having me. No, Barakalafik, I'm, I'm really happy that you joined me uh, on this podcast. And of course, let us not delay and bring on our uh, guest of honor this evening, inshallah. Uh, none other than uh, Dr. Jonathan A.C. Brown. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. How are you doing? It's so lovely to have you. And thank you so much for agreeing to join us in the podcast. Um, oh, my, my it's pleasure. It's an honor. Um, Alhamdulillah. Nice uh, compliment to me to be in it, so I'm happy to do it. Oh, no, no. I think the honor is ours, really. Um, I've known you for a couple of years now, Alhamdulillah. I'm happy to call you teacher. <laughs> uh, I remember the first time walking into a uh, into a lecture uh, hall, a small little lecture room, and uh, we were going to learn this course on hadith with uh, this book, Hadith Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World. And I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, okay, it's written by Jonathan Brown. Like, where do you get the Jonathan Brown who writes a book on Hadith, Muhammad's legacy in the medieval and modern world? And I was just expecting to get this whole Ignaz Goldzier, uh, Joseph Schacht, you know, type of thing. And then uh, as I read the book, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, and then I met uh, Dr. Brown, alhamdulillah. And uh, also I have a sanad that goes through, uh, you know, Haddathana. Uh, Sheikh Jonathan Brown In fact, uh, we had so many requests for you to, to narrate that, that hadith Al-Musalsa bil Awaliya There are many of our colleagues and teachers there who, who didn't have that opportunity the last time And they said, you know what, you have to ask him to tell us about his isnad and his mashayikh And his studies in the traditional world So uh, over to you, Dr. Brown, what do you have to say about that? Um, I'm in Bismillahirrahmanirrahim I... I, I don't know. It's sort of silly. I mean, I, I'm not. It's, it's not a silly request. It's silly for people like you. I mean, you all, you all have done so much more study than me uh, that I. <laughs> why you would? No, it's true. It's not. It's not like a matter of interpretation. It's factual. I mean, I, I don't. I don't even. Um, I wouldn't even like pretend to to have gone through the kind of studies you've gone through to. Um, I mean, I, I just have a different perspective and, and that may be like, I ask different questions, I try to explain in a different way. And so it, it can be useful. Uh, but, you know, I don't think that anything in that book is something that is, you know, is an insight that you're not going to find in the Islamic tradition. It's just sort of organized differently. Um, although yeah. it's sort of annoying. And presented, presented really well for a Western audience as well. Like really taking, uh, doing a good job of presenting the tradition in, in the English format to a Western audience mm. and telling the story of Hadith really, as opposed to, you know, normally what, what we tend to do uh, when trying to present Hadith is we, 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 well at least I did in the past, basically just try and convey Mustalahul Hadith, which is like a whole lot of terminology. And when people start hearing all those terminologies, then they just get completely turned away from hadith because it's just like, no, this thing is just too complicated and, uh, you know, it's not for me. And then they leave it. But the way you've laid it out in that book in particular, which is uh, what really got me into your, your articles and your books and so on, it was, it was somewhat different, right, uh, Dr. Yusuf? Yeah, definitely. And uh, let me state here, Dr. Brown, uh, 
Monani Irshad was my teacher at the madrasa when, when I came into third year. <laughs> and so you taught us hadith. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, obviously studying mustalah and uh, uh, various other of the sciences within hadith. But every lecture we got an article from your respected <laughs> self. We were asked to read the book. And again, I mean, definitely you'll benefit by reading the classical texts like Nukhba and so forth. But personally for me, and I'm sure for the other students in the class and in the madrasa, was that your works augmented what we studied. And I think that's important, especially from an academic perspective, being able to articulate certain points. Because usually students at, you know, madrasas, they tend to remain within a cocoon and within a sort of a traditional shell. And they're not really aware of the studies that are going on within the academic centers, the yeah. valuable studies, yeah. So, so who's your inspiration? I mean, uh, this is surely like uncharted territory for you. Uh, where did you draw from, you know, in terms of presenting the traditional sciences in this format? What was your, uh, you know, guru in this yeah. field? Um. Well, it was, by the way, it was funny because I think that class that I taught that year in South Africa, it was, I walked in and they, they were recording the lecture by, they had an iPad leaning on, sitting on a pile of my books and leaning on a pile of my books and then looking, I mean, it was just sort of this incredibly narcissistic uh, image of just like lecturing on something and being recorded on a pile of my own books, which is uh, okay. funny. I think I still have a picture of that. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, I kind of, I think I was really influenced by two general trends, I mean, or strains. One would be reading the books of uh, Muhammad Abu Zahra, Sheikh Muhammad Abu Zahra, Rahimahullah. I think he died in 1974, Egyptian Azhari scholar who wrote a, a volume on each of the, the four imams. He wrote one on uh, Jafar al-Sadiq. He wrote one on, on Ibn Hazm. He wrote one on Ibn Taymiyyah. And, uh, and then, um, but he really looked at each of these figures and kind of explained how like Malik or Abu Hanifa was trying to, they were all trying to accomplish the same task, right? And so he was, he would kind of look at their perspective and he wasn't judging them or, or, you know, trying to, you know, engaging in kind of polemics. It was really trying to understand like, what was this person trying to do and why did that lead them to make this choice and that choice? And then, um, all, then I realized that he was drawing a lot on, uh, uh the, the great Indian scholar died uh, 1762 Miladi. And so I went and I read uh, his books, especially his, um, his uh, Al Insaf, he has Bab al Ikhtilaf, his Hujat al Al Baligha. And I saw kind of the same approach where he's, he's really trying, he's mm. really looking at all these medhas or all these schools of thought as kind of uh, perspectives on one approach. They're all kind of trying to do the same thing. They have different priorities, they have different anxieties, or they have the same anxieties, but different ways of addressing those anxieties. By anxiety here, I don't mean like some kind of teenage thing where you, you know, walk into mm. where you don't have your pants on or something. I mean, like they're they want they're worried about misrepresenting the prophet's words. They're worried about misunderstanding their religion. They're worried about corrupting it. They're also worried that uh, people won't understand it. They're I mean, it's so like they they have these anxieties. You know, whether it's like the Mu'tazila or you know. Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Rahimahumallah, they all have the same concern, right? They want to understand their religion correctly. They don't want to corrupt it. Uh, they don't want to misrepresent it. Um, they want to understand what aspects of it are 
kind of eternal and unchanging, what aspects of it are change with, with, with circumstance. And, you know, although they might sometimes oppose each other bitterly on some particular issues, they're all motivated by the same approach. And I think that that seeing that like, and, and when you look at history like that and Islamic thought like that, it, it's, it stops being this, as you said, sort of like a dry and almost, um, academic uh examination and it really you go back and live like you put yourself in the shoes of those early community that yeah. early community and then like as the generations move on you you can like almost kind of live relive that experience of like trying to address these challenges and as as time goes on as you move geographically and temporarily away from arabia and so that was really like to try and go back and and see show how the hadith tradition emerged not as some kind of uh, kind of dry academic or obscure um, science, but actually as a very a very common sense way of trying to preserve information and trying to sort through claims people are making and how do you know which ones are correct, which ones aren't. And then, so that was one way. And the other way was through what, you know, what people who study Hadith today would talk about is like, you know, manhaj al-mutqaddimin. Mm. And uh, I got this from some of my teachers in Cairo, and especially uh, they turned me on to the books of uh, Sheikh Hamza Meliberi in the UAE, and okay. he's an Indian, Indian scholar. And I read his books, and uh, I eventually actually met him. It was really nice to meet him in mm, person. So. But uh, you know, where that approach also kind of goes back and says, let's like these mustalahat, they don't really work very well. I mean, which is true. That, I mean, this is. Mm. In some ways, I, you know, it's a, Musalhad is a useful way of learning about things, but you, it's not really, a, I mean, it's not, it's not that useful, right? Because you say like, oh, Munkar means this, and then you go and read a book, no. and that guy doesn't read, mean that by Munkar. It's really little practical application yeah. to, to understanding the story of Hadith in that sense. Yeah, so you don't, you know, you, all, you always have to know what a certain person means by a term, um, because that they, they don't follow these books that are going to come that they didn't know were going to come centuries after they died and so mm -hmm. i think that 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 approach really also is very common sense um and uh that so those two i think those two perspectives really important. it's quite interesting that uh i think and this is maybe why i was so uh, you know taken by your work especially when i read um misquoting muhammad um, and and your your fascination with Shawaliullah and our own teacher, the late Malnataha uh, Rahimahullah, who we sadly lost, may Allah grant him Jannah. He was also uh, he was he was very uh, fond of the works of Shawaliullah, and we read many of his works. Iqtul Jid, Hujjatul Al Baligha was actually one of the um, one of the works in the final year to studied in the final year once upon a time and uh, Al-Insaf as well. Yeah. But it was more of the accomplishments and the revival of Hadith and his approach that was uh, that really stood out. And it's quite evident uh, in your works as well. And um, you know, SubhanAllah, it was, it, was, it was quite a, you know, for us it was like, yeah, we have a rock star in the, in the field of, of uh, academia who's representing the tradition. I think that's how many of us felt. I mean, of course, I can't speak for everyone. That's at least how I felt. And uh, Alhamdulillah, and you know, and when I met you, it was like, wow, not only is he a rock star in terms of his, <laughs> his writing, he looks like one too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, SubhanAllah, I know you, clean you've rock. spoken about that. Uh, yeah, hey? I mean, I think, 
Yeah, I was I was really sad to hear about uh, Marlana Thakaran's uh, passing. Um, mm -hmm. I was really I, I I met him I think in Cape Town, and uh, yeah. I really I thought he was a really interesting person. I mean, he was very open minded. He was very you know quote unquote conservative, but also very open minded, right. uh, which I thought was a really impressive uh, you know disposition to have, and. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I think like I, I've tried. I think maybe if I've if I've contributed anything, it's to to sort of just show that you can be, you know, a Muslim who's really proud of their tradition and be an, an academic in the West. I, I'm not sure that's a big accomplishment, but I mean, I, I, uh, I don't see those things as intention. I mean, I see the Islamic tradition as a tradition of, of academic excellence. Mm. Which is the same thing in theory that I'm supposed to be pursuing as a professor or, or as a re writer or researcher, and I don't, I don't see these things as in any way in in, in any kind of um, uh, in conflict at all. I mean, I see, mm. and so I think that trying to kind of reveal that the idea that these are supposed to be in conflict to reveal this as an as an illusion has been one of my main objectives. Uh, of course, there's. So there's there's disagreements uh, or incompatibilities, uh, but those are not inherent in those two kind of traditions, right? So if you say, well, you know, you have to be secular to be an academic. I mean, I don't know who said that. I mean, why is that the case? I mean, right. you say that is example, a perception. Yeah, no, that's definitely a perception. I think more so in the past, um, you know, that uh, that dichotomy of secular and sacred always plays out. And, um, you know, sadly so, I suppose, in the madrasa systems, if we want to be honest about it, it does play out there because there's this historical baggage, um, not to blame the students or to blame the structures, but I think it's something that needs to be looked uh, to be ameliorated. Mm. Um, and, and again, I think it's these type of works, these type of engagements, uh, finding that common ground uh, between scholars like yourself, uh, scholars within the traditional settings, sharing platforms, speaking, engaging, working on shared projects, those type of engagements definitely help. And I think it breaks that perception. Um, Absolutely. But how do you do it, uh, Dr. Brown? Like, like, seriously, we were just discussing this uh, before we started. And we said, you know what, this man, mashallah, is producing like, m really amazing works. And yet, you know, you you're active in Facebook. Whenever we hear, whenever we hear from you, it, you're always commenting about some movie or something yeah, of the sort. Food. And yet the, the works that you produce, like, where do you find the time? to accomplish what you're doing. This is no ordinary feat. This is your your, your latest, uh, your largest, or rather your latest large publication, mm -hmm. uh, Slavery and Islam. Uh, I haven't read the entire book yet, but you know, mashallah, the way you tackled this yeah. topic, uh, it but, is it's just a brave step. Yeah. Even really. for me, this, was, this was interesting because I remember at the madrasa uh, when I was, I think it was the fifth year, this topic came up in one of the classes. Um, you know, we were discussing maqasid and so forth. And so slavery and Islam came up and it was something that a lot of the students were, I wouldn't say battling with, but they were trying to understand in a bit more detail. And then a week later, uh, you know, I just saw a message coming out that uh, you'll be uh, pursuing uh, a book on, 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 on the subject. Right. So right. it's, yeah, it's really interesting how these things sort of spur. Yeah, yeah. how do you do I, that, I though? That, I think that, um, well, one way I, I was able to, I think, do do a lot of, produce a lot of material was that I, I didn't get married till I was 
32. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I, I basically Take note all the students out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I kind of lived like a sort of like a, you know, hermetic existence, you know, for a long time, right. I, it would sort of just, I would travel a lot to do research, to meet people, but I would, um, you know, I, I just sort of read and read and read and read and, and just researched and researched and learned and studied and stuff for, for a, a long time. Um, maybe when other people would be, uh, busy with other things, you know, and I was just like obsessed and I didn't, I just did nothing but, but read and read and read and study and listen and listen for, for years and years and years. So I think that's, and so when I was it, when I, when I, uh, started to write stuff, I had a lot of kind of research to draw on. Um, and, uh, then the second thing was, you know, to, to know Muslim scholars who I could ask for help on things who were, you know, able to direct me to sources that I wouldn't know about, or I wouldn't have thought mm. of consulting. Um, people like you, you know, people on people like you guys. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, that, you know, that, that, that was a big thing. I mean, a lot of what I've done is really just to take work of, of Muslim scholars and kind of translate it, not literally translate it, but kind of translate it conceptually or, or mm. kind of shift it, shift its presentation to, you know, a kind of English language, uh, kind of secular facing, um, medium. Um, so th those are two ways. Uh, and, and I, and again, I, I think this is, you know, you, people have a, a negative, some people have kind of negative view of Muslim scholars and they're all stupid and backward and stuff. And that's just a very unfortunate view. And I think that people, uh, who have that view, maybe they haven't really met enough impressive Muslim scholars. And I think when you do, or when you, when you meet some or when you, and then you read books of others, you know, you're just kind of, you know, blown away. I mean, I, I, to this day, I, I don't, I don't think there's a day that goes by where I don't just like, just, I just can't, I, I just can't, I can't believe what these people do. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I, I have internet and word processing and search engines and all these indices we have and, and just like keeping up with, let's say, the books that that had be citing or even Hajar yes, site. Yes. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you, you know, you, you, you have all these tools and you're just mm. using them to kind of keep up with what this other guy was doing. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have any of these tools, you know, I mean, and, yeah. and that this was just like one of the massive multi-volume books that he wrote, let alone, you know, you could. So I think that that's, you know, what I, my point is that there's people, you know, I don't think there's necessarily people like Ibn Hajar today. I mean, there's very rarely other people like that. Someone like Kauthari was, or Imola, the Humari brothers were like that. Um, but, you know, you there there are people like that today. I mean, there are, there are certainly one or two, right? And no. if you can meet those people and learn from them and then, you know, meet their students and learn from their students and then have those people there to help you when you have a question, then you're going to be, a, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have an amazing guide through the, the things you want to study. And for me, it's always, there's always questions I, I want to answer. And, and they're not just sort of, it's an, I'm not trying to act like, you know, my questions are somehow important, but I mean, the, mm. the questions I have, I've found over the years are usually questions other people have, you know, that they're useful okay. questions. So, you know, like one, uh, uh, one 
set of articles I did was sort of on like Mets and criticism and how you like how you can show that the early Muslim scholars are doing Met and criticism. And then uh, then you get to the question of like, okay, well, how do you get, is there a way to sort of get over the problem of subjectivity with Met and criticism? Um, mm. I mean, I don't think there is, but I also don't think that's necessarily a problem. I mean, that's not a, that's not an impediment. Um, it's just something mm. to keep in mind. Another, you know, question I had is, okay, well, you know, Muslims have spent all this time authenticating material, but they also, or at least some Muslims use material that they know is not authentic. So why is that? Like, you know, so those are kind of questions I had, um, uh, you know, questions about miracles, like, uh, you know, Muslims are supposed to believe in miracles of saints. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean have Muslims always agreed on that? I mean, I'm not even talking about bringing some kind of insane left field, progressive, you know, view or something. I'm yeah. saying like, just within the Sunni tradition, what have yeah. been the views on this? And like, and you see that when, when Muslim scholars, like, you know, when they differ on these topics, their disagreements are really, really, uh, not only are they kind of sent, they're, they're very sensibly grounded disagreements, but they, they're, they're the same disagreements that people would bring up today. Right. So, mm. um, you know, if, if, uh, if you believe in miracles of saints and if miracles of saints keep happening, then eventually miracles sort of lose their meaning, lose their importance. Yeah. Right. Or, or, uh, you know, people will end up kind of harming their relationships. They'll say like, well, I'm going to, this miracle happened. And so I'm going to leave my wife and, you know, go off and wander around in the wilderness or something. And, you know, you, some scholars are like, Hey, you know, I just like a social cost of these things. So, I mean, I think that there's a, you know, you, when you explore these things, you realize that, you know, we tend to look back, you know, to look at these, you know, Muslim scholars, quote unquote, and say, you know, these guys are sort of, they don't really, they never really had what it, they don't, they don't, they don't have what it takes and they never had what it takes to address modern problems. Like they're always kind of mm. lacking that capacity. And I think that you find, what I find over and over again is quite the opposite. I feel like they, are very aware of because a lot of these problems are perennial problems we think that they're new problems but they're perennial problems and mm. they have addressed those and when they disagree with each other those are the same disagreements we have today right so um you you find that there's there's not really a, a, a an objection you can bring up today or some kind of concern you bring up today that some muslim scholar in the past some prominent muslim scholar in the past hasn't hasn't already looked at and mm. And you and you, you probably has the same point you have, you know, and was making that, you know, one thousand two hundred years ago or something, and uh, and then, you know, just in terms of other things like literally the questions that I have, uh, like something about slavery or, um, I mean, yeah, those are, um, you know, uh, these tend to be questions that that a lot of Muslims have, and that that's really like the misquoting Muhammad book came out of that mm. of trying mm. to sort of going giving lectures and talks at mosques and Islamic centers. And then, you know, you just hear the same questions over and over again. And you realize that you know, someone needs to. And then, of course, the writing I do for Yaqeen Institute, you know, a lot of that, those articles and essays are, are all on this precisely these topics, you know, hudud, um, apostasy, um, you know, the Quran and Sunnah addressing men and women. Um, and so uh, that that's really like... Um, 
you know, I, I think those books are, are here to, to provide, I hope, very thorough and scholarly, but also accessible answers to these questions. Oh, mashallah, job well done, uh, mm -hmm. right, Doc? Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. Dr. Brown, what I wanted to ask, I mean, um, obviously many Muslim students, uh, academics know that uh, your PhD was on the canonization of Bukhari and Muslim, but uh, what was your initial uh, study years on uh, in terms of your BA? Uh, did you explore languages or was it, uh, I mean, did you immediately go into Islamic studies? What was your foundational years like? When I was undergraduate, I, you know, I was originally, I think, a Russian major um, oh, before I was before I was Muslim. And then when I became Muslim, I just got interested in, you know, everything. I wanted to take any class that on anything to do with Islam or the Muslim world or Arabic. So I started to do that. And a lot of the classes were history, literature, um, uh, things like that. And. I, uh, but I took anything I could and I just really got, I mean, again, I was trying to answer questions I had. I mean, how do I understand mm. what am I, how am I supposed to live as a Muslim in the United States? Like where, mm. what does it mean to be Muslim in a place that's so different from where Muslims began? And, uh, in a lot of ways, that's the big question that, that everybody has. Um, so it's a point I, that many people kind of miss as well. Like being Muslim in the United States is not like being Muslim in uh, in a predominantly Muslim country. It's it's quite different. The dynamic is different. Yeah. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think you're you know you're you're really lucky in a place like South Africa because you have both very strong Muslim community, but also a, you know a diverse, larger society you're, you can be part of. Um, so I think that that's like a really um, good combination. Uh, in the U.S., it's um, you know it's uh, the Muslim community is obviously a lot younger and less established, and and has spent the last twenty years you know as the object of immense scrutiny from the government and constant attack from kind of conservative groups, constant attack from liberal progressive groups, and uh, that's that's had a big, taken a big uh, toll on Muslims in this country, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I think I, I studied that a lot was like history. And but that really was kind of intellectual history, which is really sort of studying Islamic thought. Um, mm -hmm. And then I went to Cairo for a year and I studied Arabic and I did some uh, sitting in on like traditional study circles, but I was, I mean, I, I didn't know Arabic well enough at the beginning to do that, but I met a lot of people where later on I would go and, and study with them. But then, uh, I went to grad school and I, I, it's funny. I think if I could go back, I would have spent a lot more time studying in, you know, like a Muslim country and traditional studies. I did a good amount of that, but uh, it was never, uh, never like a systematic uh, study. Mm. So more informal. Mm. Well, it, yeah, it was. I mean, I would say informal is a. I'm not, I don't. I don't think you mean mean that as an insulting way, but I think like that's informal. If you're doing one-on-one <laughs> -on -one studies with somebody, that's informal, but it's also a hell of a lot more effective than Absolutely. sitting in a class with like thirty other people who are you know passing notes to each other and throwing paper or something like that. So, I mean, I think like, but it wasn't, it, 
what I mean, it wasn't systematic in the sense that I didn't get, you know, this just kind of uh, A to Z study, course of study, yeah. like all these mm. different subjects. So, I mean, to and, this and day, like people will ask me, like, how do I do this? You know, Akika, and I'll be like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, how do I lead the funeral prayer? Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I never, like, no one, I never learned about my religion. Like, Islamic studies, Islamic sciences is yeah. as a way to, like, actually live my life. It was more like these intellectual topics. Right. Interesting. So, uh, in terms of your traditional studies, Doc was asking about your academic studies, but in terms of your traditional studies, uh, what was the most impactful, uh, or who was the most impactful teacher and, or what was the most impactful reading that really affected and impacted you in terms of the way you thought? I mean, you mentioned some of the scholars, uh, but in terms of your own uh, teachers and books that you read with them, uh, was there anything that, that stands out? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate because the people that I really benefited from, I think, you know, I would, you know, I, I disagree with them significantly on, you know, some political issues, but I, mm -hmm. I still mm -hmm. really, I still really, really, really respect them as scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, mm -hmm. one of them, uh, uh, you know, one of them was is uh, Sheikh Ali Juma, the Egyptian scholar. And, you know, I mm. got to know him when he was still uh, relatively not famous um, in the early 2000s. And I got a chance to study with him and read one full book with him, which was Fiqh al by Al-Isnawi. Al mm. And, uh, and uh, you know, to hear some Hadith books or that he did commentary on and uh yeah i mean it wasn't you know the just like kind of being exposed to his way of thinking was really uh, had a big impact on me you know it, it just showed me how what it was like to be around a muslim scholar who was really you know had the, the kind of gigahertz the kind of uh mental capacity that yeah somebody who's from like the 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 I mean, I, I, this doesn't, I don't want to say this as like an elitist way, but I'm, what I mean is that he, mm -hmm. he could have, he could have been like anything in Egypt. He could have been a neurosurgeon or a, like a whatever, you know, and he decided to become a, an alim. And so to, and then to have somebody who, who brought together like Hifth and uh, the cat, you know, and Ihatha, uh, and to see that was just like, was really inspiring. And to, to and you know, you, you realize like how in some ways how impoverished one is if one just reads books because the books are not to be uh they're not kind of guides uh they're not living guides they're they're sort of resources and you mm -hmm. and you they're tools it's when you see someone using the tools and you're like oh that's like otherwise you'd be like oh i don't understand this thing this part of the book says x and this part of the book says not x and that's a contradiction. And look, Muslims contradict themselves. And look at our, our heritage; it all messed up. And, so, and you realize like that's not the, that's not the case. Like these people were not idiots. Like, they didn't um, just kind of they weren't so mm. stupid that they didn't. They, they mean they wrote things and they understood that sometimes this this thing was the tool used, sometimes that thing was the tool used, and that's was fi completely fine for them. And so, 
And to see that and to really be humbled over and over again by somebody, you know, when you ask a question, you think you've got somebody and, you know, and then they just sort of wipe the floor with you and you're like, oh, wow. Mm. Really, it's really humbling for me. It was really humbling. And mm. then uh, some of his students, uh, especially there's a number of his students that I studied with that I, I really benefited from. But uh, the one I think that I ended up studying the most with personally, and then I, he really had a big influence on me, was a scholar named Osama, uh, Sayyid Osama Mahmoud, Osama Sayyid Mahmoud al-Azhari. I don't know why I forgot that. But uh, he's, he was a, he's only about a year older than me or a year or two older than me. But he was really, uh, I mean, this guy was... Incredible. I mean, that's when you you realize, you know, when someone has memorized like whole books and books and books and just and then just that's just like the data bank they're drawing on. And then they're also, you know, cognitively really capable and, and you know, and they're and, and to sit and read with them and to hear them reply to questions and is uh, it's just kind of all inspiring for mm -hmm. me. Uh, and I think it would be for anybody. Like, I don't think I'm, mm. I'm particularly, it's not like I'm insightful, either insightful or kind of have low standards. I was, I think anybody intelligent yeah. or not would be extremely impressed with these, with this, with this experience. So, uh, yeah, we read, I read a lot of books with him, but he would mostly sort of assign me books to read. And then I would come back and talk to him about and ask questions. So one oh, nice. thing I think that was like, I mean, I remember that really being uh, kind of learning a lot from was reading the whole Mizan uh, al-A'tidal of the Dahabi with him. Like, well, the and, whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then oh, wow. reading like the Muqaddimah of Sahih Muslim, reading Il al sagir of a Tirmidhi, reading um, i did that with you oh really yeah i hope it was i probably hope i get made some it's very good, really good uh, and also reading like the first quarter of uh the sunan of adatomy which is if, if anyone hasn't read that i mean if you're interested i mean it's a really fascinating uh you know uh what is it uh uh, Abu Abdurrahman, Abdullah bin Muhammad al-Dharami, I think, died uh, 255 Hijri, uh, about 878 or something, 860, I can't remember, 868. He's from near Samarkand, and uh, he was kind of a scholar in the Shafi, not yet Shafi Medheb, but Shafi tradition. And he, his Sunan, I think the, it's the first about quarter of the, the book is sort of like an usul of the Ahl Hadith. It's sort of like an usul approach to interpretation and epistemology uh, told through and constructed out of Athar of the of the, you know, the Prophet, says on the companions, awesome. the successors, the sort of the first two or three generations. And it's really amazing. Uh, and sort of to read that with him nice. was, uh, I really, I mean, so I think that these kind of, uh, those experiences were formative for me. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Sure. No, I think those are interesting points. Uh, something definitely, I think, 
many of us uh, experience as well with someone like Monana Taha. Mm. I remember, I mean, I came from the medical field. I studied medicine first. And so when I was in med school, you know, you sort of had this grand picture of a professor when they present, you know, on the ward rounds. And that's something that you aspire to. And you're really impressed with the, with the, with the breadth of knowledge in terms of how they apply clinical medicine and studies and theory and so forth. But then, you know, when you meet people, uh, as you mentioned, uh, like Sheikh Ali Juma and so forth, um, you really, you really get affected and influenced in terms of how uh, scholars of the past and, as you mentioned as well, scholars today actually still hold that legacy up. Mm. I remember when 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 I met Mawlana for the first time. I was just blown away in terms of his breath. Like you really appreciate this concept of when they say someone's an ocean of knowledge, like he's a bahar. Um, I mean, it's an idiom used in English as well, but I really appreciated that mm. you know, mm. within the Islamic studies uh, domain when, when I met someone like Taha. And I think it gives confidence uh, to Muslims, you know, just to, to know that there is a tradition. Uh, a lot of people speak about reformation, and I think that has its place, definitely. Uh, but at the same time, you need to also understand that there is a tradition, and you cannot just do away with the tradition. And before you actually want to enter that domain, you need to know what the tradition actually talks about. You need to know the boundaries. You need to know what can be achieved within the mm. tradition and the tools and instruments. So I found that really, uh, you know, influencing uh, mm. on me personally. I know, absolutely. Uh, wait, hang on. Hey, guys, I got to run grab my power cord. because I, okay. I My computer's going to die. I'll be back in one second. And like, it, it's out or whatever. So, so I actually uh, have, have, a, have, a, have a secret, right? So we started the Isnad Academy um, podcast and this channel, basically. And I, I did not delve into what an Isnad mm. is or speak about it because I was kind of saving that for the day that we got Dr. Jonathan Brown on uh, so that he could explain it because I felt that, uh, you know, it's such a central concept in our tradition. Mm -hmm. Like from the tabi'in al-isnadu min ad-deen right and and it's so central that every single science that we have every single discipline whether that's hadith tafsir qira'a uh you name it mm -hmm. every science in the traditional world you don't just pick up the book and read it you get the isnad mm -hmm. and that's essentially what connects you to this mm -hmm. legacy yeah. and uh, you can see the impact that it has i mean uh you know people see oh dr brown you know this american scholar mm -hmm. But he's connected to scholars who essentially, you know, he then attaches himself to as part of this tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is this is traditional Islam. And for me, this is kind of just like uh, what sets it apart. Mm -hmm. um, so now that he's back, we can stop speaking about him. <laughs> uh, Dr. Viran, I was just saying that we started this channel, right? Um, uh, we said we, we were not going to actually delve into this, this concept of Isnad. And I know many people were thinking, Isnad Academy, like what's this about? But uh, I was telling Dr. Patalia that it's such a central concept to the traditional world, you know, traditional Islam and its study, that every science comes through this, uh, this Isnad. And um, I remember when I read it from your book on Hadith, um, I just felt that it was, it was so beautifully explained that it's not just this, um, this chain of, you know, verification, a chain that you can verify authenticity with, but it has so much more than that. Would you care to 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 share your thoughts on uh, Isnad? <laughs> Let's talk Isnad with Dr. Jonathan Brown. Bismillah. I mean, I guess you know. I, I think. Well, in one one 
from one perspective, it's just, it's very, it's very obvious. And I think that we, I think, rob ourselves of a lot of benefit by not seeing that. Uh, so, you know, Shawali Allah, when he talks about uh, knowledge, right? I mean, you either, and this is kind of a, again, this is not some profound insight he came up with. He's just yes. kind of giving you a summary of how Muslims talk about not just how Muslims, but how like Aristotle or Saint Saint Augustine would talk about the acquisition of knowledge, like, and but here I mean knowledge, like literally just perception and idrak of the world around you, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you either you get things through perception or for principles of reason, which are very few. Like sense perception, obviously, is a lot. For anything you haven't experienced, you get through. It's not like. Whether it's someone telling you something, or it's something you read, or it's a video you watch, right? So everything getting by some kind of transmission that you anything you haven't experienced comes by transmission. Uh, mm-hmm. So in one sense, like you to think about that and to think about like everything that you if you if you want to verify the world that you are perceiving from outside your own experience, you have to be critical of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or you, you're not critical, but like, you, then just be honest about that, right? So like when I, when I, um, you know, when I look on like the, the, the weather forecast and it says, you know, it's going to be cloudy today or something, like I don't think about that critically. Or when I, you know, when I, uh, you know, when I, um, you know, hear that, like, my son's soccer practice is going to get moved to some other time. Like, I don't sort of be like, who's telling me this? I mean, we, so much of our lives, we just, you know, we, we kind of trust things because we are used to them or it's not that important. If, it, if we're being misled that we don't need necessarily yeah. have to, uh, it's not going to cost us that much. But that when things are important, we do make uh, a lot of effort to verify uh, mm. information. So that's one sense, like, that, that thinking about it's not as like the way that we learn or, or, or the way that we perceive the world around us is I think very important uh, because that's how Muslim scholars thought about it, right? They thought about um, anything you don't, anything that you can't pers- experience yourself or grasp mm-hmm. through first prin- prin- principles of reason, you're going to have to get through some kind of chain. And then you should be aware of what that chain is um, and what mm-hmm. its potential risks are. The second thing is, uh, you know, that uh, our traditions of knowledge to this day are still Isnad based, even in the West. Right. So, I mean, there's uh, when you go to like, you know, you could buy my book on Hadith and just read my book on Hadith. And that's like pretty much anything I'm going to I mean. My classes, like I might give examples that are not in the book, but like you know, everything I'm going to tell you is pretty much in the. Hmm. <laughs> that's Same thing with my class. I, I've written so many books now. People could just read my books, like or you know, but why do you go to class to, to be with yeah. a teacher? Because hmm. you interact with them, they correct you, you ask them to specify, right? You you learn to think critically, like they're teaching you how to think critically. Like one of my students asked me yesterday from one of my classes, like, you know, what am I supposed to learn in this class? And I said, actually for this class, I don't really care if you learn anything because this class is not 
really about you learning material. It's about you learning how to think critically, read critically, speak speak articulately, right? Um, and so that's what you get from being around people who are more knowledgeable than you and more capable than you or older than you or more experienced than you. So the same uh, tradition in our uh, in, in, in any kind of place of education, any kind of traditional ed of education or practice, whether if they're like medicine or I mean, how do you learn how to like cut, cut a liver or to transfer a liver? I mean, you could read books on it, but you got to basically someone who's done that a lot. It's going to teach you how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the other thing. And then finally, the last thing is just, uh, you know, the idea of connection to the past the idea of reliance on the past, the idea of, of being both a inheritor and a kind of a junior inheritor of, a, of something that's bigger than you and greater than you from people that were better than you and greater than you, but also having to rise to the occasion of, of that, right? So that you, you are now the face, you are now the latest... The, the edge of this, the leading edge of mm. this, of this tradition as it moves into the present and future. And that you then have to step, you, you have to fill those shoes, uh, even though you, you know, might not be as capable as you'd like to be. You have to fill those shoes. That's a big responsibility. Yeah, it's not your shoe size. Mm. Yeah. I, and I think that, you know, that's like really important. And I think that, you know, I, 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 I yeah, I think that's, that's very important. Mm. Awesome. You know where this is leading today. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to yeah. culminate into getting that is not from uh, Dr. Michelle. <laughs> you know what I found interesting really in these, uh, in, in, in these recent times of COVID-19 is the application of hadith principles. Yeah, we actually got a comment uh, just a moment ago. In fact, we should actually look at the comments. Uh, I think it's exactly what you're yeah, about to say. I'm just reading there. Um, yeah. So basically that as uh, Tawhida Isaac says, even during the whole experience of COVID-19, it's not as been essentially, has been essential, has been essential but so easily but so discarded. Easily discarded. Mm. And that's really just what I wanted to say as well in terms of the practical utility of Hadith principles and the value of Isnad with all this uh, mass information not really being verified uh, from sources, particularly on WhatsApp, emails. Um, people are more confused than ever in terms mm. of the authenticity and the value of what they're reading. And especially when it comes to, you know, uh, something so serious as COVID-19, where so many people have passed away, so many people have, have become sick, have been impaired. Um, it's important that we at least are able to draw on our tradition. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's not hadith proper in a sense of, uh, you know, practicing the principles, but it's something that we could translate late into um, our general uh, daily activities and our daily affairs. I don't know what's your thoughts on that, Dr. Dr. Brown, with regards to the situation in the U.S. Um, but yeah, that's what we've been experiencing here in South Africa. Yeah. A lot of criticism on misinformation and fake uh, news. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, first of all, the idea that you, you know, you verify information, uh, you verify it by getting corroboration, you verify it by checking out who the source is, you, uh, you assess the reliability of a source by their history of providing information, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if I think, you know, Maulani or Shad is a nice guy or not. That just doesn't matter. Like what matters is, have I consistently gotten reliable information from Maulani or Shad, right? Or does it matter that Maulani or Shad is a Hanafi or Shafi or Shiite or Sunni, right? You know, that doesn't, 
like that's the issue is his performance um that uh that, that people are very you know that that somebody you know that you don't like trusting people's claims is just never a good idea in the sense that so you know melania or shad come and say like oh you know i heard from this guy who i really trust this thing and that guy's full of it like you know it doesn't you don't like you don't the world isn't we don't get information just because somebody told me something and you know yeah he says the guy's reliable like which guy who is this person you know really like go and check really and then go and check did that person really say this because right, had misunderstood the person right so go and check i mean i always remember this this example in um uh i think it's in uh i think Wakia. no i think it's in um al-kindi's tariq al-quda that you know that uh uh, uh i think it's bakar bin Qutayba, the, the the hanafi chief judge of cairo in the kind of the time of shafi he imam shafi he uh he is uh, wants to rebut Imam Shafi's some of his opinions, uh, but he doesn't just do that. He goes and he sends two like his reliable secretaries to go and attend, I think Al Muzani's class, and he says, um, "Did Al Muzani did Shafi actually say this in this?" And they read they listen to the whole book, and then they check. Did he say this thing? Yes, he said this. Then he comes, he gets the report back, and then he rebuts the opinions. Right? He, he doesn't just say like. I heard Shafi says this, and oh my God, I, I am starts typing about because maybe that's not what Shafi said. Maybe he never said that. Maybe somebody misunderstood him, right? So, how much of our, you know, reaction to each other, our reaction to information, our reaction to situations, is this based on this kind of off the cuff, um, unverified? And that, that's not how how Muslim scholars uh, did things. Like, and it's they they did that because they 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 knew that the way that errors come into reasoning and to mm. The chains of, of transmission and and this is not just i mean we, we're talking about hadith but this is like in any that what i just gave you as an example from law like whether it's law or mm. theology or Sufi, anything uh this the, the the methodology of the asnad is permeates all islamic sciences right? mm. um mm. except right it doesn't i remember you know there's this uh aqaida you know the that like you know makana uh 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 what is it? Ma kana ma'qulan fabfi, wala yuhtaju ila ta'arif binaqalah. Right. So whatever is ma'qul, its its proof is inside it. It doesn't. You don't need to know. Mm. Like if someone says two plus two is four, you don't need to be like, who said that? Mm. Yeah. Like is <laughs> yeah. that person reliable? Like where did you get that information? So if someone says, mm. you know, so you know, like or, or a kind of critical point, right? So if someone says like. Um, uh, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think of something from like COVID-19 or something like, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're immune, someone says like, if you're immune compromised, <laughs> it's, da- it's more dangerous to get this disease. Yeah. Like, mm. okay. It doesn't really like that. Just, that's a basic kind of almost rational principle. Like if you mm-hmm. lack the resistance of a regular person to X, then you are going to be more vulnerable to X than no. a regular person, right? So, um, so that kind of thing is, but then, you know, you also have to be very careful about when you, like where that division between ma'kul and man'kul is, 
Because if someone mm. says like, oh, um, I am really nervous about COVID-19, so I'm going to wipe my groceries with uh, Lysol wipes or something. And mm. then, because you're thinking about kind of this, like you're getting a cold or something like that, but then you don't, you're, you're thinking this is reasonable. And maybe it's mm. a good precaution when you don't have access to information yet, but then you find out like, actually this is transmitted sort of through in- inhalation and through, through, through air, right? So it's not like something you get like a cold where you're going to touch something and then put, touch your eye or something like that, right? Like, so it's, uh, you know, that sometimes we think that some, that a conclusion we come to is, uh, is reasonable, whereas in fact, we don't understand that it's actually not accessible to like first principles of reason, that it's actually a specialized subject of study that, mm. so for example, and I'll give you an example, this would be like um, that, uh, you know, improving healthcare reduces for uh, um, reduces population growth. They're like, wait a second, what do you mean? You have bad healthcare, more people die, that means there's less people. Hmm. Okay, but if you look just <laughs> yeah. sort of over time, how is this how the how this actually functions in society? If you increase healthcare, people have less babies. Okay, I don't know why that is, it's just something like this is a specialized thing that people have observed who study that one area. And so, you know, a lot of times we get mixed up between, um, you know, mankul, ma'kul, what's mm. like ma'kul in the sense of awaliyat uh, or badahiyat, like first principles of reason, yeah. versus mm. what's actually, um, um, what has come through nadar, right? Nadar. So if you, nadar and uh, tajruba. So you have to have investigation mm. and then uh, empirical study before you can say that you can like rationally grasp certain things. So I think like we our failure to to uh, to kind of appreciate these categories, and of course then like that it doesn't matter who says certain things. Like you know, mm. somebody go, why are you going to listen to that point? That guy's a bad person, or that guy's a Republican or a Democrat. Like that doesn't mm. matter. It doesn't matter. And you, when you when you don't listen to people because you don't agree with other things they say, then that's your you know you're fundamentally misunderstanding how knowledge and truth. We could do an entire podcast just on that last point. Uh, it's such a huge thing these days. I mean, with cancel culture, you know, yeah. uh, sort of flowing over into the traditional circles. All of a sudden, like there's a scholar, you said one thing somewhere, you're willing to write off every single thing is ever written because of that one statement that he said. Look, I've got a, I've got one question from Kari um, Malna Salim Gaby. He's one of the top scholars of Kira'a in South Africa. And he said, uh, I need to ask this question. So in honor of one of my teachers, one of our teachers actually, Malna Salim Gaby wants to know, what's your advice uh, to a student who, you know, wants to further their studies, either they're just beginning as a student of Deen, uh, you know, studying Islam in traditional seminaries, etc., and they want to, you know, go further. Uh, do you advise them to enter into academic studies in formal universities, um, and how should they approach that? If you do, um, well, I think it depends one where you are. It depends what you want to do with it. Um, I think, like in a place, let's say you're in South Africa, I think. I'm not sure who teaches in universities there, but I mean, it kind of depends, right? So if you, in general, I would say be very careful of academia because 
um, you know, I might not see any clash between, you know, being a Muslim in the Islamic tradition and being an academic, but most people, <laughs> most people do. And those people are not fans of the Muslim part of that. Right. So <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. uh, and by the way, like people like Farida Sak, this is why I think they, I mean, I don't want to speak for, for him, but, but I, I think I, I imagine I, he would agree with me. You know, I think one of the reasons they kind of got turned off by aspects of academia in the West is that they saw that a lot of kind of Islamic studies or discussions about Islam in the academy are, are essentially political projects, that they're, um, they're these created to sort of just suck in Muslims and just crush, the, you know, crush, crush them spiritually and then also... Mm. Uh, kind of neuter them politically in a lot of ways. Uh, mm. um, so I think that this, uh, so I, I think that, you know, I, I tell Muslims like they should not, don't take classes on Islam in universities because you're, that's the, the person who's been selected to teach for you is, uh, and it's just, there's not like there's some conspiracy. There's not some committee of people who are like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that. Like, it's just the way that uh, academia works. So, in, in the United States, like, let's say I don't know how things are in South Africa, but like in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, you have um, okay, Muslims are a problem because this is how they're seen by the mainstream. They're a problem because they are they're a security threat. Mm. So we don't want them to get radicalized, and they're a problem because they're conservative and they don't have right views about gender and they don't conform to our culture, right? So the the organs of that society the infrastructure of that society is going to work to break those things down uh yeah. right so mm -hmm. if you um like you're gonna and actually yeah, is full of people who are generally progressive liberal non-theists right and they are going to perpetuate those views and to push mm. those views on their students like that's just the the way it, and who's going to get the job like who's going to get the job as an academic like the guy who writes the book on how you know islam says that actually homosexuality is great or the guy who said writes a book says islam says homosexuality is prohibited who's going to get the job who's going to get the fellowship who's going to get like like our our societies are are built to produce and to encourage uh results that the power elite in those societies wants right and so they want mm. liberal progressive depoliticized unsure understandings of religion that's what they want right mm. they uh, uh, um and so that's what they'll and you can see this you know if you read the the 2007 uh, building moderate muslim networks report that was produced by the rand corporation this is, I mean, uh, basically yeah. says we, we should go and promote like liberal, progressive Muslims and Sufis and, uh, you know, Gulenists and stuff like that. That's what it literally says this stuff, you know, and and so it's not some kind of conspiracy. It's how it's how a society's function. So I think that you universities are organs in that system. And that doesn't I, I love universities. I never left university. I, I this is not a criticism. This is just a sense of like. You need to know what if you want to go to university, go to university. Really going to benefit things that you're going to be kind of put into a meat grinder uh, mm. over. Now it depends. Like if you, 
I, if you go to, uh, if you can, if you can study with people who are not like that, right? So if someone can say, you know, I want to study with Jonathan Brown, well, I'm not going to be like that. You know, I'm not going to, if at least in my classes, you're not going to be subjected to that kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to try my best to make you a good scholar. I am, but it just means that, you know, the environment is very different. And mm. so I think that it, it depends who you have the opportunity to study with. Mm. And uh, I would say that you should not, whatever you do, do not go, do not study Islam or anything about religion or philosophy, anything about kind of morality or knowledge uh, without this very strong traditional grounding. You really have to... To, to know your stuff or, or you're going to get chewed up. And I've seen this happen more times than I can count. And now, I mean, I look at my, the kind of Muslims that I went into grad school in the, the, the same cohort, not just at my university, but it all kind of across the board. And then mm. ones who went in 10, 20 over the past 20 years. And I mean, it's been like, <clears throat> You can see like a few programs where you have professors who have like a more kind of integrity as Muslims. Like they, they're producing, I think, really good Muslim scholars and good scholars, period. But a lot of the programs are just producing um, essentially not just people who have completely lost themselves to doubt and skepticism, mm. but that are then committed to propagating that and, and, and sucking other people into that as well. And that's very disturbing and sad. Now, it's yeah, it's sad to you and that we're not to be like that. Absolutely, I think it is a beautiful perspective, and uh, I think uh, many many of our viewers who, who you know inform me that they are waiting eagerly for this podcast, they'll they'll appreciate that advice, mm -hmm. and uh, also many students currently and people who intend on you know pursuing the study of Islam. It's a big question because yeah. I mean uh, the these. There's real benefits to to taking your your, your studies further at the university mm -hmm. for whatever reason, but you know these are the concerns that they have, uh, Doctor Brown. As we proceed to the end, um, I know we've we've had you on here for about an hour now. Uh, how do you feel about that request? I mean, I don't know. Can you? I don't know if you can give. I mean, you can read in a snat, I guess, but I, I don't think you give ijazah <laughs> over podcasts i don't i mean i, I actually, i'm sure i know i know people have written books on or written stuff on yeah. this I, maybe do if i were we, we we've done my it. friend <laughs> my friend garrett would probably know this the answer to this i mean i'm sure that people have done fatwas on this topic uh, it uh yeah i mean it's been so long since i uh yeah, I mean, I, I collected, I should actually collect my snads into a book. I mean, it's not going to be like an award-winning book or anything, but it would mm -hmm. be, uh, I mean, and I have friends that have shorter snads than I do, uh, but, you know, mm -hmm. I try my best. So I understand, yeah. what What do you What do you want? You just want uh, me to, like, read in a snad for you? Is that the... Yeah, I think the, the, the one in particular we were speaking about was the Hadith al-Musalsal bil-Awaliyah. If possible, you know, we don't want to really put you on the spot and pressure you into that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I haven't, I'm not going to, I'm going to read it to you because I'm not going to say uh -huh. from memory because I haven't, I'm not confident that I wouldn't make a mistake and there's no reason to make mm. stupid mistakes. Yeah, uh, of course. But, uh, 
Yeah, it's not a it's not as short as Snad, but uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. you know, a nice one. And there's other ones. Let me think. I can find some other ones. Maybe one mm. second. Um. Yeah. Um. Oops. Yeah, this is from uh, Bukhari. This is to Bukhari, which is a pretty short, uh, short snad. Um, okay, um, I'll do two, and then you can. Uh, Bismillah. I can uh, I can just do two, and then you can. Um, Again, I, I, norm, I it's sort of cheap to read, but uh, otherwise I'm not gonna. It's not gonna be accurate. I don't feel comfortable. Um, okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Haddathni bihi. Sheikh Salhab al Abqari, Sheikh Osama Said Mahmud al Azhari. Qala wahu al Hadith Smaatuman. Qala haddathni bihi. Sheikh Sheikh Salah al Muammar Baraka al Baraka Abu al Barakat Muhammad ibn Saad. ابن بدران الدمياطي وهو الأول حديث سمعته منه قال حدثنا مهان بهاء دين أبو ناصر القاوقجي وهو أول حديث سمعته منه قال حدثنا أبي أبو المحاسن القاوقجي وهو أول حديث سمعته منه عن محمد عابد السندي the famous hadith scholar of uh, the Hijaz but originally from Sind محمد عابد السندي وهو أول حديث سمعته منه قال حدث now we've gone to the Ahadila in Zabid in Yemen. The great Mizjaji clan Hanafi scholars of Zabid. قال حدثنا أحمد بن محمد الدمياطي الشهير بابن عبد الغني وأول حديث سمعت منه قال حدثنا حدث محمد عبد العزيز منوفي بفتح الميم منوفي المنوفية في مصر وهو حديث سمعت منه قال حدثنا أبو الخير عمر بن عموس الرشيدي وهو أول حديث سمعت منه قال حدثنا شيخ الإسلام زعرية بن محمد الأنصاري الشافعي هو أول حديث سمعته من قال حدثنا الإمام الحافظ أحمد بن علي الشهير بن حجر العسقلاني الكناني المصري هو أول حديث سمعته من قال حدثنا الإمام عبد الرحيم بن الحسين العراقي الحافظ هو أول حديث سمعته من قال حدثنا الإمام صدر الدين محمد بن محمد بن إبراهيم الميدومي الحنبلي وهو أول حديث سمعته منه قال أخبرنا الإمام أبو النجيب ابن الصيقل الحراني وهو أول حديث سمعته منه قال أخبرنا الإمام أبو الفرج عبد الرحمن ابن العلي الشهير ابن الجوزي الحنبلي البغدادي وأول حديث سمعته منه قال أخبرنا أحمد أحمد ابن عبد الملك النيسابوري وهو أول حديث سمعته منه قال أخبرنا والدي عبد الملك ابن إسماعيل المؤذن المؤذن والنيسا النيسابوري 
وهو الحديث سمعت من قال أخبرنا الإمام أبو الطاهر محمد محمد ابن محمش الزيادي وأول حديث سمعت من قال حدثنا الإمام أبو حامد أحمد ابن محمد ابن يحيى ابن بلال البزاز وهو أول حديث سمعت من قال حدثنا الإمام أبو بشر عبد الرحمن ابن عبد الرحمن ابن بشر ابن الحكم العبدي وأول حديث سمعت من قال حدثنا أمير المؤمنين في الحديث سفيان بن عيينة وهو أول حديث سمعت من وإلى سفيان تنتهي الأولية على هذا المنوال قال حدثنا عمر بن دينار عن عبي قابوس مولى سيدنا عبد الله بن عمر بن عمر بن العاص رضي الله تعالى عنهما عن سيدنا عبد عبد الله بن عمرو بن العاص رضي الله تعالى عنهما قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ارحموا من في الارض يرحمكم من في السماء وليرحمكم من في السماء راه احمد والحميدي في مسنديهما والبخاري في الكنى والادب المفرد وأبو داود في سننه وترمذي في الجامع وقال حسن صحيح والحاكم في المستدرك وصححه وغيرهم وقال سخاوي إنه صحيح باعتبار ما له من متابعات وشواهد And then the second hadith is uh, the first hadith from Sahih Bukhari أخبرنا الشيخ محمد بن إسرائيل الندوي السلفي المتوفى سنة 2900 ميلادي إجازة قال أخبرنا عبد الحكيم الجيوري أخبرني نذير الحسين قال أخبرنا الشاه محمد بن إسحاق الشاه محمد بن إسحاق الدهلوي أخبرنا الشاه عبد العزيز بن ولي الله الدهلوي قال أخبرنا والدي سماعا إلى كتاب الحج مع أكمال إكمال باقيته على خلفائه أخبرنا أبو الطاهر الكوراني قال أخبرنا حسين العجيمي قال This is the the Ali the Isnad Ali قال أخبرنا محمد علاء الدين البابلي أخر أخبرنا سالم بن محمد السنهوري قال أخبرنا نجم الدين الغيتي قال أخبرنا الشيخ الإسلام زاكري الأنصاري الشافعي قال أخبرنا أحمد بن علي بن حج الأسقلاني سمعا لكله قال أخبرنا إبراهيم بن أحمد التنوخي البعلي وهو ابن رازين قال أخبرنا أحمد بن عبي طالب الحجار Al-Hajjar that is, was illiterate, but who remembered hearing Sayyid Bukhari when he was a child in Damascus and then going out afterwards and playing in the canal with his friends, who was later found to be the la- last surviving person from those uh, hadith sessions. Uh, Ahmed bin Abi Talib al-Hajjar. Akhbarna al-Hussein ibn Mubarak al-Zabidi. قال أخبرنا أبو الوقت السجزي الهروي قال أخبرنا عبد الرحمن بن محمد الداودي 
البوشنجي والفوشنجي قال أخبرنا عبد الله بن أحمد بن حيوي السرخسي والسرخسي قال أخبرنا محمد بن يوسف بن يوسف بن مطر الفرابري قال تلميذ البخاري قال أخبرنا محمد بن سعيل البخاري قال حدثنا الحميدي عبد الله بن الزبير قال حدثنا سفيان قال حدثنا يحيى ابن سعيد الأنصاري قال أخبرني محمد بن إبراهيم التيمي أنه قال سمعت ألقمة بن, بن ابن وقاس يقول سمعت عمر بن الخطاب على المنبر قال, قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إنما الأعمال بالنيات وإنما لكل امرأ ما نوى فمن كانت هجرته إلى دنيا يصيبها أو إلى امرأة ينكحها فهجرته إلى ما هاجر إليه وعجزتكم بجميع مروياتي حسب الشروط المعتبرة عند أهل العلم قبلنا جزاكم الله خيرا Dr. Vran, I thank you so much for your time, um, all of us, and we, we look forward to having you in South Africa again really soon. I know you love South Africa, and yeah. I know you love the people of South Africa, so we really, really need to get you here, please. Yeah, I really want to come, uh, you know, whenever you, uh, you or whoever can manage to finagle an invitation for me. This time I want to try and bring my family, I want to, so, you know bring my kids over Shall and, get that sorted uh, uh, you know i mean uh, not asked i'm not asking anyone to pay for them but uh <laughs> whatever whatever however much they can you guys can chip away at the cost i'd appreciate it um, inshallah we'll make a plan Dr. No, Brown, just, again. just uh just a sideline question uh your favorite espionage movies <laughs> um, now the reason why I asked this is that I had a debate today um, with a couple of friends uh, after Juma uh, regarding the Bourne trilogy um, or the set of the Bourne movies, the Bond movie that's also coming out now. So we're just discussing, you know, what would probably uh, take uh, the the, Wait, the, the so top few like positions. Like the best Bourne movie or the best like spy? No, no, movie? just in terms of. Just in terms of these espionage spy movies, like what would you rate, uh, in, in, like as your personal preference, obviously, uh, do you He's enjoy like the Bond? Yeah, it was funny. Actually, the I, I, the Bourne movies, you know, the one I really liked was the the Bourne Legacy, the one that doesn't have Matt Damon. It's not, not that I have anything. Uh, I just really liked yeah. the, the Bourne Legacy with uh, Jeremy Renner. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny because I, it was... It's a bizarre circumstance, but I ended up talking to the director of some of the other Bourne movies. <laughs> okay. This yeah. is a very bizarre. I, and I, said, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, I just want you, you just to know. Knew which like, question to ask. I like this other one the most. And he said, well, that's the, that's the one I like the least. I was like, oh, okay, well. Anyway, the, uh, then I really liked Spy Game with Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. Okay, that yeah. was very good. It came out not long after 9 11, so it's an interesting kind of document of. Hmm. Um, uh, almost pre nine pre nine eleven uh, uh, film on yeah. espionage. I liked uh, the Spy Game. I mean, I like all the James Bond movies. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, I liked uh, my favorite James Bond is either 
Timothy Dalton or George Lazenby. I like. I did not oh, expect yeah. Timothy Dalton. Yeah, oh, yeah I did not Dalton. expect that. He's got so much passion. You know, he's got a really. Yeah. He's a, I like. I think the Living Daylights is my favorite one. Uh, okay. okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, although Golden Eye is my close close second. I would have gone for Piers Brosnan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's. Good. I enjoyed watching Roger Moore. I enjoyed. They're all good. We know. Yeah. I mean, this is not to, not to knock any of the other ones. But I, I just yeah, think yeah. Uh, Timothy Dalton brought a kind of level of passion to the role that I hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, movies. Uh, Not a Mission Impossible fan, eh? The Mission Impossible. Yeah, I like Mission Impossible. Yeah. I like them. I like the Mission Impossible. I mean, the, 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 the last one or two didn't blow yeah. me away. But I think the... I liked uh, one. I liked the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm -hmm. I liked, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Of course, Mission Impossible is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's a, I think it's a good uh, summary. I don't. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many. Did when they I start writing books like you do, then I'll start watching movies like you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just said, yeah, I mean, movies well, are like, interesting. You know, I mean, one of the ways, I don't, I don't watch, I mean, I almost never watch movies mm. uh, on television. Like, I mean, I just, because uh -huh. I, especially I used to travel, before COVID-19, I traveled a lot. So I would yeah, watch on movies on the, on the airplane. Oh, I yeah, see. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's what I do as well. I mean, just catch yeah, up so on I, everything. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't else have, you can do. ever since I had, uh, kids and maybe even since I got married, I my wife is trying to call me actually right now. I'm probably gonna have to go in a second because. Oh yeah, no, I mean we've we've kept you. Uh, but thanks for that. I think uh, we well, hang on we really second. really are looking forward to having you in South Africa. Like yeah, uh, well I would love to get you. Want, you want to invite me? Sorry, I'm the point. Invite go me uh, and invite my wife because she can also give talks on lots Absolutely. of Absolutely, yeah. Stuff. And uh, we would love to come as, as a family. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll set something up. I'll speak to uh, one of my good uh, family friends, Professor Yasin Mohammed. I think he's with Yakin as well. Um, yeah. And a few of our local our local uh, academic centers, the libraries, yeah. the academy. We'll work on something as soon as COVID allows, inshallah. Uh, we'll definitely... I think it's allowed now, man. I think it's basically feel, open. Yeah, yeah, think, I yeah mean, we'll, we'll work on something. Everything, everything is allowed now. But sort of like, it's kind of the... It's sort of a hard situation because you're like, I yeah. supposed to go to Germany in a month or two. And I'm like, should I just go to Germany? I mean, actually, I, it's funny. I went to Turkey in the summer and it was a lot less stressful yeah. than I thought. But it was also kind of before right. the Delta, Delta stuff happened. So yeah. now I'm kind of right, like, right, right. am I supposed to, should I do this or not? I don't know. I don't know what that, we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll all know what to do in due time. And uh, you covered uh, Dr. Brown because, you know, Dr. Yusuf Patel, he's actually a medical doctor. We'll sort you out, inshallah. Yeah, yeah. but I think it's, it's a wise decision. Yeah, we're looking forward to, to that. Yeah. Just to, to see how things go yeah, over yeah. the next couple of months, see how things pan out. It's, I mean, it's a novel virus. We don't know how the vaccines, obviously, in a sense, with regards to long-term immunity. Yeah, so I yeah. think it's worthwhile just to see how things pan out. But inshallah, in the near future, we'll we'll definitely work on something. The niyas there and the himmas there. So Absolutely. Inshallah. And we hear that Jaza uh, in person as yeah. well, inshallah. And I'm sure you'll appreciate the holiday in Cape Town, eh? Just to oh, some yeah, sightseeing. It. It's yeah. a beautiful place. Absolutely. And the food, the food, bunny chow, all that stuff. 
That's it, Durban. I think <laughs> all that stuff. The the Gatsby's. Yeah, Combase. Yeah, we, we ate the wine. Sadie called. What was it? The prawn. <laughs> that's where we meet. The prawn. The prawn place. The what was that? I can't remember. The, the, there was some place that had prawns. No, you know that's in Joburg. I think that was in Joburg. Yeah, yeah. it was in Joburg. Was, but then, uh, yeah, we also there was a that's place. Jomies. There was this uh, place in uh, also in Johannesburg, but I remember this, uh, this coffee shop called Motherland Coffee, and it had okay. a drink called the Dictator. Make the yes, day obey you. <laughs> 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 if any of you go to that coffee shop, take a picture of that drink. Like on the menu, I, I somehow just stupidly didn't take a picture of it. It was the dictator. Make the day of hey, you. We'll, we'll try to arrange that as <laughs> well. Okay. Inshallah. Dr. Ryan, Thank you. Take care. Salam to your family. Right. And we Bye. hope to have you on soon again. Yeah, Thank you, you so much for your time. See you later. Okay. Well. Stay safe. Uh, shukran, everyone, uh, for joining us. You know, it's, it's quite late. We all have other things to do tomorrow, inshallah. But uh, thank you so much. And uh, shukran to uh, Dr. Yusuf Patel for joining me as a co-host on this podcast. Ahlan wa sahlan. You're welcome anytime, inshallah. Shukran. Until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.